Hey, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, can we do what we sometimes do, and that is welcome everyone at all the campuses? Just say hello and welcome to the Bel Air, Yabbingdon, Mountain Road, Edgewood, online. Glad you're with us. Hey, let me ask you a question. What, what, what is grace? Like, how, how would you know it if you saw it? Would you know it if you saw it? What's grace? Is, is grace just like um, you, you, earn a, you earn a D and the teacher gives you a B? Is that, is that grace? Sometimes we, we see a ballerina and somebody says, oh, how graceful. That's grace. Is that grace? If I did the same thing, would you call that grace? Is that grace? What's grace? You know, we say the, the Queen of England, she graces us with her presence or she graced the event. You know, they even used to call kings and queens your grace. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas about this idea of grace. You know, uh, there's probably no family that's more confused about grace than this family, though. Take, take, a, look at, take a look at this. Before we begin, since this is Aunt Bethany's 80th Christmas, I think she should lead us in the saying of grace. Uh, what, dear? Grace! Grace! She passed away 30 years ago. They want you to say grace. The blessing! Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. 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 Whatever. So that's grace, I guess, to that family. Grace gets a lot of, there's a lot of different understandings. What is grace, you know? Uh, um... Is it, it's more, we get the idea, don't we, as God's people, that it's more than a fluid motion of a dancer or a, a prayer before a meal. Grace comes out of the character of God. It's like part of the very nature, essence of who God is. That's what grace is. And if you want to see grace, you want to know what it looks like, well then, you're going to look at God. You're going to look at God's character. You're going to look at God's actions. You're going to look at God's people who are people who... Are, are people who are after the, uh, God's own heart, then you'll be able to see grace, maybe. One, one of the definitions that we sometimes use of grace is this idea of unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. You ever heard that? That's not a bad definition. Unmerited favor. In other words, it's, it's an act of kindness or blessing or something good and kind done to someone who doesn't deserve it. You know, they can't repay you. They didn't earn it, but you show it anyway. So we're in week four of this series called Thread, and it's all about that thread that we are looking for to weave through our lives, and, and that thread can be God. And if it's God, then there's going to be an element of grace in it. And we're going to look at that man, David, again today. And he was a man after God's own heart, which is why he demonstrates grace. I'm going to show you a story from David's life that involves a very obscure man with a very hard-to-pronounce name, and it's going to challenge us with what grace really looks like in your life and mine. 
Because that's a question I hope you leave wrestling with today. What's grace look like in your life? Like would people see the grace of God by looking at you? But first, we've got to back up and catch up a little bit on some things that have happened. Remember David, little David, country boy David out in the uh, fields with a, shep- with a sheep, David, right, is, is anointed as the next king, and he kills the giant, and everybody loves him except Saul, who's still the present king, who doesn't love him, who hates him, is jealous, he tries to kill him, chase him around, chase him into caves. We've been over all of that. And then eventually, Saul's life comes to a grisly, tragic end. Uh, you can read about it in the Bible. It's sort of a PG-13 sort of episode. Uh, the Philistine army is closing in on Saul and his army, and uh, they're in massive retreat, and all of a sudden there's in this massacre, and bodies are littered all over the fields, and they're coming after Saul, and in that process, the Philistine army kills Saul's three sons, including Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan, David's best friend. Saul is probably standing there looking over the dead bodies of his own sons when he himself is hit with an arrow and he knows it's a mortal wound. He asks his armor bearer to help him prevent the indignity of having a Philistine come and get him by running his sword through him. And his armor bearer says, I can't do that. So Saul takes his own sword, falls on it, and there is his tragic death. And then this this guy, Saul, who cared so much about his image and what everybody thought, unfortunately, is there lying in the fields when the Philistine army is going through and stripping everybody uh, of the fall. And that's what you did in those days. You didn't, want the, you didn't want your enemies to sort of rise up and use that ammo or that sword against you. So you took all that, and they go through, and they find Saul's body, and they cut off his head. And they carry it around from place to place as a way of mocking him and mocking his God, and they pin his body to the wall of Beth Shan. It's a gruesome end to a life that really didn't have to end that way. It's a, it's, it's a sort of end that didn't have to be because he chose these sort of compromises, shades of gray, disobedience, walking away from God, thinking he knew better. And in the end, he, he dies this way without God's favor. Maybe a reminder to all of us how we're living. Some of us are maybe living a life that need not have been right now. The tragedy in Saul's life is not just that when he died, they cut off his head from his body. The tragedy in Saul's life is that while he was alive, he cut off his heart from God. And so he's gone. So, back to David. We're into the part of the Bible now that's called Second Samuel. It's sort of a, the same book. It just kind of continues on. It's called Second Samuel in your Bible. And David finally ascends to the throne now. He's about 30 years old, the Bible says, when he became king. And he reigned for another 40 years. He was a 70-year-old when he died. And now we're heading into the glory years of David's life. He, he goes down and he takes over at a place called Hebron. And he fights a battle there to retake Jerusalem. He calls it Zion or the city of David. Makes it his headquarters. And now this great authority and expansion of King David begins to move like crazy. You get some summary verses like 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 10. says that David became more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. You get this idea that God is now going to bless and build this kingdom. And it's exactly what he does. Verse 12 says something similar. Similar. David realized as all this good stuff is happening around him that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people. So these are good times for David in a period of expansion. All the enemies are kind of subdued. The Hittites, the Egyptians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and, and all of the 
all uptights and all those, they're all gone. And so it's, it's moving into a time of peace. They, he expands the kingdom from about 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles in this time period. We've got ex- extensive trade routes that he puts in. And so the money starts coming in. Uh, and the nation is unified. Uh, we've got commercial highways and culture and wealth coming from Phoenicia and Damascus and Assyria and Arabia and Egypt and all this. The whole surrounding world looks at him as the sort of most successful monarch on the planet. The people look at him as their mighty general. And he's also a spiritual man. He brings in the Ark of the Covenant, and he tries to even offer to build a temple to God. This is David at the top of his game, and he's got no war. He's got his family all around him. He's got about 20 kids at this point, and so he's finally at a place where he has a little interlude of calm in his life, and he has a little bit of breathing room. Maybe this summer some of you will be able to Find some time where you can just reflect a little bit about your life. I think it's what David's doing in this passage. He's just thinking about the big picture now. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 says, It came about when the king lived in his house that the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. And so here he is reflecting. And in the season of peace, he begins to think about all the blessings of God that he's experienced. All the unmerited favor. All the grace that he's received. Here's something we say around here a lot, and it's true. When grace happens to you, it's going to flow through you. And I think that's what's going on with David at this point in his life. He's counting his blessings, he's thankful, and he starts feeling this urge to respond and do something in some way. And so, as he reflects on that, he also remembers a promise he made years earlier. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. One day, David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive, I wonder? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Don't be fooled by that word kindness there. It, we think of it as kind of like being nice, but it's a robust, strong word. It's the word grace, really, in our translations. Is there anyone... I can show grace toward. Grace, remember, is unmerited favor. Someone who doesn't deserve it, can't earn it, can't repay you. I wonder if more of us would wake up in the morning with that question, how different the world would be. I wonder who I could show grace to today. David asked that question. Why did he want to show grace to someone? Well, When grace happens to you, when it really changes you, you stop just going through your day looking at what someone can do for you. You want to let it flow through you to someone else. But also he'd made this promise. Back when his life was, you know, sketchy and, and, and he was running for his life, Jonathan was trying to help him out. And Jonathan says, hey, remember me. When you come in, when you get to be king, remember me, will you? 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. Jonathan says to David, show me unfailing kindness. There's that word. It's grace. Will you show me some grace like the Lord's grace as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your grace from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies from the face of the earth. It was the custom in those days when a new king took over the dynasty is that you killed off everyone in the old dynasty because you didn't want them rising up in revolt. And that was the custom. You just killed them all, just killed them all off. And Jonathan's like, it'd be kind of nice if uh, when you got to be king, you didn't do that. 
And, and, and David promises, I'll do that. He says, yes, I will. He does the same thing to King Saul. Chapter 24, verse 21. Saul says to him one time when they're in the cave, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name by, from my father's family. And so David gave his oath to Saul. So he's remembering these promises years later in a time of calm. And he's saying, you know, it's time. I, I've been so blessed. I wonder who it is that I could show grace to today. Notice he doesn't say, I wonder who's qualified. He doesn't say, I wonder who's really worthy of a bonus. He's talking about grace. Well, they find this old guy named Ziba who apparently knows everybody and everything. And they ask Ziba, hey, do you know anybody? 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? I want to show grace to them, kindness. And Ziba says, yeah, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. I'm so intrigued by his answer. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, I know a guy, but David, I don't know. I don't know if he looks so good around here. It might be a little messy. I don't know if you know what you're getting into. With this palace and all the pretty people here, I don't know if you, he's crippled, if you know what I mean. Kind of a reserved answer, isn't it? Well, David says quickly, he just says, where is he? Where is he? Verse 4, the king asks, where is he? And, and they give the answer in Lodabar, which is how I got to looking that up. You know what? Lo in the word Hebrew, in Hebrew means no or none, and Debar means pasture or wilderness. This guy literally, the, the name of the place is, there's, there's a guy, uh, but he's nowhere. <laughs> he's in the middle of nowhere. He's a nobody. He's no place. And he's crippled. And I wonder if David had a flashback to when he was being selected as king. And they were coming looking for all the important people. Remember that? And they're like, is there anyone else? Any other? No, there's nobody. Well, only David. He's out in the middle of nowhere. Little nobody David. And God saw David when no one else did and showed him grace and favor and elevated him. And David now, I wonder if he's remembering that. Because when grace happens to you, it kind of works its way through you. So he's, he's changed and he's thinking about that. Grace, grace isn't picky, so he says, go get him. Grace is one-sided. It doesn't say, what's he got to give? It just, he just says, go get him. And so here is this king stooping down to this person who could not be more unlike him. Now, let's talk about him for a second, this guy. This cripple, how did he get crippled? Don't you, aren't you curious? Well, if you, if you look back a couple of chapters, there's the answer. Chapter 4, verse 4. We get introduced in a parenthetical statement. It says this, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. Same guy. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So they get the word, oh no, the war has gone badly. Your dad and all your uncles and your grandpa is dead. And so his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was... His name was... Uh, Mephibosheth. Mephib Want to try it? Mephibosheth. Try it. Now, some of you said Meshibosheth. Some of you said Mephibosheth. No, here's the thing. Mephib let's try it again. Mephibosheth. Try it. 
I, you cannot say that three times fast. I've tried. You can try that. Try that over lunch today. You can't do it. I don't know what they called them. I bet when they called them for dinner, it was like, someone go get Phoebe or <laughs> Mr. M. But Mephibosheth is hard to say. And it's not just that his name is, is, is kind of goofy. It's that his life is tragic that draws our attention to him. He's five years old when his daddy is killed at war. And his, his nurse or nanny uh, is trying to protect him. And as often happens, when you are living in a place of warfare or terrible, dangerous circumstances, sometimes you need to run for your life. It happened then. It happens today. Mephibosheth is a refugee child, and he's trying to get away and escape. And as is often the case, it, it incidentally leads to more trauma and struggle. That's exactly what happens here as his nurse trips and falls and leaves him permanently disabled. And now he's more vulnerable than ever, hiding so that he isn't killed, fearful for his life. And, then, and now we catch up to him and the government is knocking at his door with some papers that say the king wants to see you, which is never good. And he figures it's the end for him and off they take him to Jerusalem. And the Bible gives a vivid picture of that scene. Chapter 9, verse 6. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And he said, I'm your servant. Can you picture that moment? Gosh, what pathos. Here's this guy. He throws his crutches aside, throws himself on his face before the king and says, here I am. Because this one has the sovereign authority to discern his next breath. And he figures the end is near. He expects the worst. And that's when grace breaks through. And grace overpowers fear. Listen, grace overpowers fear. When you have fear, what you need is grace. Verse 7, don't be afraid, David says. I intend to show kindness. I'm here, I want to show you grace. Because of your father, your dad was my best friend. We're buddies. We, I loved him more than I loved myself. I'm going to bless you. I want to give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. I knew him too. And you'll always eat here at, at this table. You're, you're welcome here. Mikasa, Sukasa. Can you imagine that moment when Mephibosheth's got his face in the dirt, thinking he's going to feel a sword on his neck, and the next thing he feels is grace showering over him. What does grace look like? It looks like that. It looks just like that. There are some people who are negative and critical and whiny and stingy and unkind and half glass empty and uh, scarcity mentality and grumpy. And most of them are on Facebook, I think. If you want to talk to them, they're there. And they are the opposite of grace. They're rigid and bitter and chronically unhappy. It's the opposite of grace. Carl Menninger tells the story of Thomas Jefferson, who was with a group of companions traveling on horseback cross-country when they came to a swollen river. And there was this man who was waiting there to get across. And he waited until several crossed, until he hailed... President Jefferson and asked if he would carry him across on his horse. And so Jefferson reached down, pulled him up, and put him on his saddle with him and carried him across to the opposite bank. When he got to the other side, one of the men asked him, why is it that you asked the president and selected him to ask your favor of? And the man said, the president? 
I know he's a president. I just know that on some faces is written the answer no, and on some faces the answer yes is written, and he had a yes face. He had a yes face. When you've experienced grace, and it happens to you, and you realize that, it changes your fate. You have a yes face. I wonder if you have a yes face. Like if the people who know you best, who work with you, who live with you, whether they would think you have a yes face, whether you've been touched by grace. Ephesians 2 says we are saved by grace through faith because of what God has done. There's blessings innumerably poured out for us. So for some of us, that's touched us and it's, it's starting to flow through us and it changes our face. A yes face is someone who lifts up others and puts them on their horse with them to help them get where they need to be. I wonder, is that you? Are you what grace looks like? I can't help but think of that story Jesus told. There were lawyers and everybody around trying to get at the legalities, what's the neighbor and who's this and everything. And Jesus says, well, you know, sort of like this guy. He goes along the road and he's beat up and left for dead in the ditch. And then this pastor happens by, but he's like, I can't get my hands dirty. I can't take the risk. I don't know. It might not work out good for me. And he passes by on the other side. And then another, then another mountain Christian member comes by with a little bumper sticker with a fish on his car. He pulls over and long enough to see the guy, but then he thinks, you know what? That guy probably shouldn't have been walking on this road in the first place. Probably shouldn't have got himself into that fix, and I don't know what I'm going to get myself into. So he passes by on the other side too. But then there's this Samaritan guy who's just a dog. But he comes by and he sees the need, and he doesn't care about the fact that they're not supposed to get along. He just gets down in the dirt and he and he, and he binds the man's wounds up and he helps him and eventually calls a cab and gets him some help and pays the bill himself. And the punchline to that story is Jesus says, "See those three guys? Be like that last guy. Go and do likewise." And Jesus is trying to show us who our neighbor is and what to do with them. What does grace look like anyway? Looks like that. Looks like that. Just like that. And that's what David did to Mephibosheth. He made a nobody a somebody. He, he stooped down and said, come on up and eat at my table. Pulled him on his horse. He stopped and helped the man in the ditch. I like, I like verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8. After Mephibosheth hears this, he bows down and respectfully exclaims, Who am I? Who is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And David says, Ah, stop talking like that. And then he says to Ziba, Everything, just take care of this guy for the rest of his life. I want him to always eat around my table. Verse 11, he says, Mephibosheth did that, and he, he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This fugitive, hiding, crippled refugee eating dinner with the king every night. Can you just let your mind go for a minute and picture picture that dinner table, you know? You got King David, the dinner bell rings, ding, 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 and I don't know what they're having tonight, but he comes in and sits down there at the head of the table, and, and uh, it's, not, it's not a scene like Chevy Chase at all. 
First in comes David's son, Amnon, and he's, he's, the, he's clever and witty and smart because he's always there first because he knows when the dinner bell is going to ring. And then Joab marches in. He's muscular and masculine and attractive and struts in like a soldier that he is, sits down. <clears throat> and then Absalom comes in. Talk about a handsome GQ guy. He's got these long flowing locks, and he just kind of strolls in and winks at everybody and... He's there. And then there's Tamar. She comes rolling in, the tender, beautiful daughter of David. And then Solomon puts his books down, you know, closes the laptop and long enough to come in. He's studying, but he can eat. And then they hear down the hall, clump, drag, clump, drag. Getting louder as he gets closer. Clump, drag, clump, drag. Here comes old Mephibosheth hobbling down the hall. Slips in awkwardly to his place. Sorry, I'm late. Smiles. They all smile back. And he tucks his crippled feet under the tablecloth of grace. Freeze that frame in your mind because that's what grace looks like. How much does your table look like that table? The world needs more homes and hearts that look like that. Unless you think we don't need more grace in the world. But we do. Is your home and your heart and your table a place of grace? Where you demonstrate kindness to someone that probably doesn't deserve it, probably didn't earn it, probably can't repay you. Did you notice after David says, come in and be part of my family, that word in verse 8, 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 8. He says, who am I that you should notice me? He's like, why would you even notice me? I'm just a dog out in the middle of nowhere. And that's what grace does. It notices people and says, you're not a dead dog to me. I hear you. I see you. I value you. You matter. And I'm going to recognize that even though you're vulnerable and weak and can't pay me back, I'm extending favor on your behalf. Grace flowed through David because he was a nobody that God called. And then it flowed to him, to someone else, to another nobody. Who is God calling you to notice, I wonder? Who is God calling you to notice, to see? Like Jesus, it says in Matthew 9, 36, that he, that he saw the crowds. He noticed and he had compassion on them. That's what happened with David. Who's God calling you to, to notice? It may be someone that makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes, may be someone that others don't notice or that you've gotten kind of used to not seeing. Maybe someone right under your nose. Of course, we know we've got to do more than just notice. Real grace doesn't just notice. It does something. The guys walking along the side of the road, they notice, but they pass by. It was the guy who did something that demonstrated grace, real grace. And that's what we need to do, too, to actually extend favor or kindness, to love someone in a special way. In the Bible, the word that's used is often hospitality. Now, we think of the word hospitality as kind of a weak little weenie word. Like you go get a major in hospitality, you're going to run a hotel or a restaurant. Or you're going to invite some friends over and have some dogs on the grill. You call that hospitality. It can be all that. But you know what? In the Bible, the word hospitality is this 
rich, deep, strong, robust word. It's a radical concept where we bust down barriers and we invite people in and include them into a community. We invite them into our lives, into a place of welcome, where we move from from hostility to hospitality, where we say welcome, and we move from hospitality even to household, where we say eventually we hope we'll be brothers and sisters. Hostility, hospitality, household. That's the biblical pattern. Romans 12, verse 13 says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always a command. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Always. You know what that word hospitality, you break it down, it's in Greek, it's two parts. It's philoxenia. And philo means love, and xenia means stranger. Love the strangers. Always be ready to love the stranger. Always notice the Mephibosheths in your life. When grace happens to you, it's going to flow through you, and it's going to show itself in hospitality with your home, your heart, and the stranger. So we get up in the moment, we say, who needs grace today? What kind of person, whether it's the kid in the lunchroom or the person at work that never gets an invite, or the new neighbors down the street, grace looks like that. How do we apply this practically? Well, there's a whole lot of ways, and you've got to figure it out what it looks like for you. I'll give you a couple examples to think about. For David, he literally opened his home to Mephibosheth. He adopted him. And he gave him a place at the table. And I think for some of us, it will mean the same thing. Literally adopting. Because so many children in our world today, like Mephibosheth, don't have a home, a mother, a father, or a family. And adoption can change that and be a beautiful demonstration of grace. And I'm so proud of the many, many families at Mountain to do that. Our own Cole and Don Willard, both on our staff here, and their kids are in this journey right now of opening their home and adopting, and they're in that process. And I always say, if you're a Christ follower, you ought to either be adopting or helping someone who is, or encouraging them, praying for them. It's that important. And so maybe you, if you want to join them on their journey, here's how you do it. Go find their Facebook page, or you maybe know someone else, but encourage someone. If it's not you that's called to adopt, how can you help? Instead of walking on by. Or another way we can do it is through foster care. It's, 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 it's just as important. These kids sometimes slip through the cracks. Zach and Jen Mann are also, uh, Zach's also on our staff. That They're going through that process right now uh, of getting vetted and cleared so they can find, have one of these kids that slips through the cracks. You know, they get curveballs thrown at them in life and just sort of invite them around the table and say, you can put your feet here and cover all of their past with the, the tablecloth of grace. What if... In Hereford County, the foster care count, which is way too high right now, shrunk because all those people at Mountain had yes faces. What if some of us opened our tables in our homes or encouraged those who, who do? Or you could sponsor a child. That's why we talk about sponsoring a child around here because it's a tangible, practical way, like through Missions of Hope in, in, in Kenya. Powerful, powerful. A lot of us are sponsoring kids. Or, or like here's a picture of a couple of my sponsored kids in Ecuador where we've got a team going soon. That's Yuli. I remember, if you remember her, I showed a video of her last year at this time. I was down visiting her. Yuli and her brother Joseph. And um, I tell you what, I'm so proud of Mountain. We, we sponsor together 3,000 kids around the world. That's to the tune of about $114,000 every month. It doesn't flow to Mountain. It goes right directly to these kids. $1.3 million a year because we're trying to say, let's create some table space for some kids. And I can tell you, it does a world of good. It changes their path. 
not just because it gives them food and education and school and clothes and health care. It, it changes their life. Or the epicenter, right here in, in our own backyard. Call them up. Get on the website. Tell them, tell them you'll help. They'll find a way for you to plug in. There's so many ways to show hospitality. The key is that we would learn to kind of look and see and notice, right? Notice those that maybe we haven't been noticing that we could show grace to. As long as we're talking about this, extending grace to vulnerable people who need hospitality, we must say something, at least briefly, about the unprecedented global crisis that we're all facing together right now, which is over 60 million people worldwide who've been forcibly displaced from their homes. Imagine being forcibly thrown out of your house. More than at any time in history, 20 million of them forced to run for their lives to another country like Jesus was when he was little, or David when Saul was chasing him out of the country. More than half of those refugees are kids, children, all over the world. Gets a lot of press what's happening here on our own borders, but we don't have much action on our borders compared to what's happening around the world. So admittedly, this is kind of a tricky, sticky, difficult thing to even talk about these days because the whole immigration issue, refugee resettlement, those seeking asylum, it's become a very contentious, controversial issue, right? We all know that. And, and it rubs up against all kinds of complex policy issues, governmental standards and border security, national security, things like that. And so as a result of that and also a lot of misunderstanding about how things actually work, we've got a pretty growing, uh, I think, anti-refugee sentiment today, which is ironic considering our history, but we do. And it's coupled with this highly charged political thing, and we're going to hear a lot about this through the debates and the election and all of that. It's very complex, and I think as a result, a lot of Christians feel sort of torn. Maybe you're one of them. On the one hand, you want to protect yourself and your family and do the right thing for the, as a country, and yet you have a desire to, an instinct maybe, to minister compassionately to those vulnerable, and you don't know what to do. So what I might just try to say is and navigate a, a statement here. I would just say, we can take a variety of perspectives on the political side of this and admit to one another this is complex and this contentious and we don't all agree. And we can debate all day about what the government should do as a, and what we should do as a country, as a nation. There's things we've got to do for borders and all of that. Yes, yes. And we can debate what the government should do as a, and our country should do all day long. But what's really not up for debate at all is what Jesus clearly taught us. And that was love your neighbor. And that part, we just got to figure out how to actually do something rather than walk by the other side of the road. So if we're truly Christ followers, I'm anxious for maybe mountain people to lead the way at looking at this issue that often gets cast as, well, it's about economics or it's about security. It's like, no, can we just start with seeing it as a biblical issue? Because that's what it is. It's a biblical issue first. If you're a Jesus follower, now if you're not a Jesus follower, you can look at it as a political issue all you want first. And foremost. But if you're a Jesus follower, then we submit to his authority, and, and he has a ton to say. God has a ton to say on this issue. It's not a mystery. So debate all you want about what the government should do and what the country should do, but there's no debate about what a Christ follower must do. In the Hebrew Bible alone, that word that's translated foreigner and stranger and immigrant and sojourner, it's the word ger in Hebrew. It's there 92 times, and it's always lumped together with caring for the widow and the orphan because it's very close to God's center of concern. He really cares about this. Welcoming the stranger is actually the most often repeated command in the entire Old Testament, other than love the Lord your God. Most often. And Jesus echoes this call when he says, love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you have done to you. 
So whatever we want to say about what the government should do and our country should do, we're also seeing Christians, some of whom have strong anti-immigration mindset, who may even want to build a wall, recognize that we've got an urgent humanitarian crisis that we've also got to deal with right in front of us that forces us to take our fear and let grace set it aside long enough to operate out of a basis of faith and obey the clear commands of Jesus to do something for the stranger in our midst. And so, I think this is why I think the way Jesus told the story, it doesn't go, and the Samaritan came and looked at the man in the ditch and asked him, you know, do you have papers? Because at that point, it didn't matter whether it was legal or illegal. Now, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying, at some point, that's not the question. Those guys that first passed by, they said, I'm afraid of what might happen to me if I get involved. And the third guy, the Samaritan said, I'm afraid of what might happen to that man if I don't get involved. And that, to me, looks a little more like grace. And so we've got to wrestle with that. We do need good policy. We need governmental laws. We need to handle all this stuff and security issues. That's absolutely true as a country. But in the meantime, we've got to deal with the reality of the people that are in the ditch. So, for example, we need laws about fireworks. And on the 4th of July, some bozo is going to go blow his arm off. And if you were the first one to see him, I doubt the first thing you'd say is, well, you broke the law. You'd probably just say, let's get a tourniquet so you can live. And that's a little more like Jesus. And I know this, that according to Jesus in Matthew 25, on the day of judgment, there's sheep and goats. And he says to, to one group, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Thank you. God bless you. Well done. And to the others, he says, I was a stranger and you closed me out. And they'll say, when did we do that? And they'll say, when you did it to one of the least of me, these. Depart from me. So we need to notice, we need to pray, we need to do something. What you do, your own conscience will have to guide you. But let's not hide behind our politics and prevent it from helping us be Jesus people, wherever we land, okay? How do you do this? Worldrelief.org is one great organization. they got a Baltimore group that you can partner with, as Kathy Bonnier and others at our Beller campus do every week. They, they help these people who've gone through the very arduous vetting process to become legal refugees get resettled. And even though you go through the legal process, it's still very disorienting and confusing and difficult, and they need a friend. They need a help. They need an open. They need a hand. And you can help that way. Or you could be one of the ones who helps with a welcome kit. Or they need, they need pro bono lawyers to help them with things. They need doctors and nurses. Or you could help with Lasos.org. They're local Hartford County for non-English speaking people. You could tutor English. You could help them. You could do financial advising or bring them a plate of cookies. doesn't matter. The point is this. Wherever God shows you someone like Mephibosheth, you've got to decide how blessed you are and whether it's going to stop with you or flow through you because that's what grace does. Let's, let's conclude our time together here the same way the story in, in the Bible ends, by gathering around the table. Let's share communion together at this time to draw our hearts back together again as people who are recipients of grace. So at all of our campuses, servers, if you'll kind of get ready to share the, the elements of Jesus' body and blood, because they are the perfect reminders of how we have all been saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus has done on the cross. As we come to a time of communion right now, here's the deal. Every one of us is Mephibosheth. 
We all come kind of spiritually crippled to this moment. And Jesus, by his grace, invites you here, whoever you are, and you can slide your spiritual crippled self under the table and the tablecloth of grace covers you and here you are, welcome. This is a place of grace. I know some of us don't have a lot of grace in our lives. Maybe you don't have a lot in your, maybe your week was not filled with grace. Maybe where you work, it's real cutthroat. Maybe your family's real dog-eat-dog right now. Well, this is a place of grace and you're welcome around this table in this place. Maybe you feel like Mephibosheth when he came to David. He was afraid. Oh, I don't want to go before the king. It's going to be bad. And a lot of people think about God that way. I don't want to come before God because it's not going to be good. And he's mad. He's going to hurt me or be bad, mad at me. But just like David showed grace to Mephibosheth, Jesus has shown us that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's grace. So hobble on in. To the table of grace. And we'll share these elements reminding us of Jesus' incredible love and grace outpoured for us. Everyone's welcome around the table. One more thing. There's more grace in God than there is sin in you. Want to know what grace looks like? You look at the cross. There's more grace in God than there is sin in you. Thank you, God. We rush through our lives, and there's a lot of hurried and hustle. For some of us, this is the only time we really get a chance to just take a deep breath and be quiet. So we're going to do that together now and share these elements. If you're a believer in Jesus, take the elements and take them when you're ready. We're going to sing a song during communion. Don't let that rush you, hurry you. you just Whenever you're at peace and ready to join in, you join in. Welcome to the table. It's a place of grace. God, we thank you for Jesus, for his incredible display of grace on the cross for us. Receive us now, Mephibosheth, every one of us, as we hobble in our spiritual brokenness to you and receive your love and your grace. We pray in the name of Christ.